this morning. So this morning is the last in our series. Farewell, my friends. We've been journeying through um, John chapters 13 to 16. And we are now on the last one. This is Jesus in the upper room. It's the night that he's betrayed. It's the night before he's crucified. And it is his final words to his disciples before he dies. So let's pick this up in uh, John chapter 16, verse 16 through to 33. I'm going to skip a few verses, um, but I'm going to read the bulk of it here now. The words of Jesus. In a little while, you won't see me anymore. But a little while after that, you will see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, what does he mean when he says in a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me and I'm going to the Father? And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it. So he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that, you will see me again. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It'll be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When a child is born, um, when, when her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. Then verse 31, Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. I've told you all this, so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, a few years ago, 2006 to be precise, I led a team to Kenya. It was a team of about 10 of us um, from the church. A few of the, uh, us who went on that trip are here today. And uh, we spent 10 days in Kenya doing some outreach work and doing some support work in a local school and orphanage. And it was a great time and a great trip. But I took with me on that trip a parachute. It's not because I am a nervous flyer. You'll be pleased to know I'm not a particularly nervous flyer. But I did take a parachute with me. And the reason I took a parachute was because we were going to be spending a lot of time with uh, young people and children in the school. And we were going to play some parachute games. Now, the parachute was in a separate bag. It was in a parachute bag. That's where you keep parachutes, in parachute bags, I guess, isn't it? So on the way home, I got on the plane on the way back, arrived back at Heathrow Airport, and uh, all the baggage was going around the old baggage circulator. You know, when you're waiting for your luggage and the bag comes out, you go, oh, that's mine, and oh, no, it's not, it's another black bag. Oh, it's mine, oh, no, someone else's black bag. And eventually your bag, looks like everyone else's bag, turns up, and you're relieved that you've found your luggage and you can go home. So I picked up my suitcase and I went home, and I came out, and there waiting for me was, uh, was Sarah and Emily, who was about two years old. And then I'm on the M3, just coming past Winchester, and I suddenly remember the parachute. Like, oh, no, I didn't pick up the parachute. I forgot about it completely. So 
When I got home, I phoned up Heathrow Airport, said effectively, have you got a parachute? <laughs> and they eventually said, yes, we've got your parachute. So we arranged the next day to go back to Heathrow Airport, but rather than just have a wasted trip to Heathrow Airport, we'd have a day out. So we'd go to Heathrow, pick up the parachute, and then we'd go to Windsor for a little day out in the afternoon. Um, so we told Emily, who was two years old, that was what was going to happen. Explained it all to her. Drove to Heathrow Airport parked the car and got out. And as we got out in Heathrow Airport, she started to get really upset. She was quite tearful, she was really clingy, and we're thinking, what's going on? We've come to collect the parachute, why is she upset being at Heathrow Airport? I was devastated because I thought, well, I love, you know, she's not gonna love aeroplanes in the way that, that I do. But what we realized was that Emily's only experience of going to Heathrow Airport with me was to say goodbye to me and send me off for who knows how long to another country. And she really missed me when she was away. So she really didn't understand at two years old, even though it explained it, that the reason to go to the airport was simply to get the parachute. And you could see the relief on her face as we left the airport with me still there and had a good afternoon together. And I think there's a similar situation going on here with the disciples. Verse 16. Jesus says, in a little while you won't see me anymore, but a little while after that you will see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, but what does he mean when he says, in a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me again, and I'm going to the Father? We don't understand. It seems complete news to them that Jesus is going to go away and come back, and yet Jesus has already told them what's going to happen. Do you remember that moment that famous moment we often remember when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That was a moment, it's recorded in three of the Gospels, whereby Jesus had asked the disciples who people thought he was. And Peter said, you're the Messiah. And, and, and Jesus said, well done, Peter. What's been revealed to you has been revealed by God. It's amazing. And then Jesus went on to explain what being the Messiah actually meant. Jesus. And it wasn't what Peter wanted. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests. And the teachers of religious law, he would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, uh, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So now that that time has arrived that Jesus had told them about, that he was going to be captured and beaten and killed, but would rise from the dead. And now it comes to that time, and Jesus is saying that time is now. And the disciples just don't understand. Why? Or maybe they've forgotten but I think that's unlikely considering it's written down in all three of the Gospels, that, that, that passage I've just read, Mark chapter 8. Maybe the idea of resurrection was so far out of their experience that they couldn't comprehend what was about to happen. But again, I think that's unlikely. They'd already been with Jesus and witnessed three people being raised to the bed from the dead by Jesus. Or maybe... They didn't want the way of the cross. They didn't want Jesus to come into victory 
that way. Actually, what they wanted was the way of the world. They wanted to come in and be rulers with Jesus, with all the power and the prestige and the wealth that all that would bring. That was what they anticipated. That was what they expected. And here's Jesus offering a completely different way. And Peter had already tried to talk him out of it. Back in Mark chapter 8, that moment when Jesus had revealed this and Peter had tried to talk him out, Jesus then called the disciples together and he said this to them. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Faced with those two options, coming into power and glory with Jesus, an earthly kingdom with all the trappings of wealth and prosperity and success, or following Jesus to the cross, which would you choose? I think most of us are far more like Peter than like Jesus. We want the good things of the kingdom, don't we? You know, the hope and the joy and the love and the relationship with Jesus and the eternal life. But we'd rather avoid the cost of the kingdom, the sacrifice, at times the pain, sometimes the ridicule, the difficult choices to lay everything down, to surrender and to sacrifice. And for some, even death. Now, I would quite like to have a six-pack. I, um, at times, have had a four-pack. If you get the light just about right, and I haven't eaten much for a while. Um, now, when I say four-pack, I'm not thinking so much four-pack of beer. It's slightly more sort of a four-pack of toilet rolls, slightly a little bit flabbier. But I would quite like to have a six-pack. In fact, I used to want to have a six-pack. Until I discovered that I have a six-pack. Apparently, everyone's got a six-pack. Did you know you have a six-pack? But you've got to get your body weight, your body fat percentage, down below 12% in order for it to be exposed. Now, I am way over that. So, first of all, big diet thing going on. And also, I spoke to someone I know, this person I know who has the biggest muscles. So I thought, I'd quite like to have some big muscles like you. Um, and then he told me that he goes to the gym. He wakes up at 3.30 every morning, so he's in the gym at half past four. I'd like to have a six-pack, but I don't know that I really want to go through all the effort and the energy of all of that. Apparently, those things, I, I thought those things would be quite... Do you remember they used to be advertised where you could just sit at your desk and have electrical impulses? And apparently, they look amazing. Apparently, they don't work, which is disappointing. We often want good things, don't we? But are we willing to walk through some of the challenges that it takes to actually have them? Jesus tells his disciples this in verse 20, that the only way to victory is actually through the cross. And yet, the other side of the cross, there is unspeakable joy. Verse 20, I tell you the truth, You'll weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor when her child is born. Her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. 
So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. Beyond Jesus' death was unspeakable joy for the disciples. Jesus is killed on the Friday. They've scattered. They've fled. They're hiding for fear of the Jews and the Pharisees and the, 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 the leaders of the time in an upper room locked away. And then, on the Sunday morning, Mary goes to the tomb. The tomb's empty. She's bewildered and she turns. And there's the gardener. And she talks to him saying, where have you placed my Lord? And then she discovers it's Jesus. What, a, what an immense moment of joy and confusion and delight. We get the disciples, the two on the road to Emmaus, they take a walk and they're thinking of all that's happened. There are rumors of the, the grave tomb being empty and someone comes and walks alongside them and they chat and he seems to explain everything and it all makes sense and then they're suddenly revealed to them. It's Jesus. Oh, the joy. And then that evening, they're locked behind closed doors and Jesus appears among them. Everything changes. The world is turned upside down. The unspeakable joy that comes the other side of the cross. And Jesus warns his disciples, however, that they too will have to walk the way of the cross. Verse 32. The time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when you will be scattered. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Tradition tells us that 11 out of the 12 disciples, all but one, all but John is believed, faced a bloody and painful death. Peter himself, who had been so keen to stop Jesus going to the cross, say there's another way. Jesus himself, tradition tells us, was crucified in Rome upside down. The same cross, but he wouldn't allow himself to be crucified the right way up because he did not feel that it was, he, could, um, he, he, wasn't, he, he didn't want to be crucified the same way as Jesus because he didn't believe he was worthy or holy enough to do it. In this precise moment where we are in Chapter 16, before the cross, the disciples don't have the courage to follow Jesus to his death, let alone to their own. So what happened? What changed for them that led them to walk out their lives in the same way and the same sacrifice as Jesus? I believe the final words of chapter 16 give us a clue. When Jesus says, take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the ultimate power in the world, which is death. There is no return from death. Even this week, we heard about um, Alexei Navalny in, uh, in Russia, who had been imprisoned by Putin, who mysteriously died. Even in prison, he had some power. He was some risk to Putin, and yet now he is dead. The ultimate power in this world was death. But Jesus came, took that power onto himself, and broke through raised from the dead, bringing life and power and transformation. And that is the life that the other side of the cross, the disciples discovered, that allowed them to walk and lay everything down. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote this. He got it. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? 
filled with that knowledge. That deep knowledge, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, the apostles were unstoppable. Read the book of Acts. It's an adventure in faith and drama. And when the time came for each one of them, no longer would they flee and run away. They would not deny Jesus in the slightest. When the time came, they were able to endure their own labor pains. Imprisoned, flogged, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, in danger from Jews, Gentiles, bandits, gone without sleep or food, cold, naked, and eventually killed. That's just one of them. That's Paul. What he endured and went through. I know it wasn't disciples, but later became an apostle. Because of the joy that they had experienced in the resurrected Jesus, and because they knew for them that on the other side of their death was joy unspeakable. They had complete faith that Jesus had overcome the world and had overcome the power of death. Paul writes this in Romans. I want you to hear this this morning. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A Korean martyr just before they were executed said this, you may take away from me my life, but you can never take Christ from my heart. We all want the good things of the kingdom, the peace, the joy, the love, the blessing, the healing, the friendship, eternal life. But are we willing to also take the way of the cross? Are we willing to take and count the cost of the kingdom? Giving everything to Jesus. No matter what it costs. Because we know that he has overcome. Because we know that if he is for us, then nothing and no one can be against us. And because we know there is unspeakable joy that he has poured into our hearts, but it's also there beyond death. That we can begin living eternal life now in his power and in his glory. And I believe that God is calling many of us to a deeper level of trust and a deeper level of faith. 
just as he did his disciples. We have the beauty and the joy of living the other side of the resurrection. Resurrection life for those who have chosen to put our faith in him is in our very bones and in our very veins. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Are we willing to trust him? Are we willing to lay it all down? Are we willing to give him everything? Let's pray. Father, we are humbled as we read your words, as we're reminded of the power of the cross that defeated the greatest power in this world, which is death. The thing that seems so final and yet you came and defeated it and brought life out of it. We thank you that we live the other side of the cross. That we live in resurrection life. We thank you for the way you bless us with so many good things. Father, we ask that you would give us the courage to discover what it means to lay everything down for you. Just as the disciples did. Just as the apostles did. Take us, Father. Take us as we are and lead us deeper. In Jesus' name, amen.